ಪದಂ ಕೇವಲ ಜ್ಞಾನಮೂರ್ತಿ ದಂದಾತೀತ ಗಗನ ಸದ್ವಿಷ ತತ್ತಮಶಾಲಾಕ್ಷಮಲಮಚಲಸಾಕ್ಷಿಭೂತ ಭಾತೀತ್ರಿಗುಣರಹಿತ I shall read to you a few lines from the teachings of Swami Vivekananda. These lines give the essence of Vedanta philosophy. There is one principle which underlies all these various manifestations of religion and which has been already mapped out for us. Every science must end where it finds a unity because we cannot go any farther when a perfect unit is reached that science has more of principles to tell us so with religion the gigantic principles the scope the plan of religion were already discovered ages ago when man found the last words as they are called in the vedanta i am he there is that one in whom this whole universe of matter and mind finds its unity whom they call god or brahman or allah or jehovah or any other name we cannot go beyond that at this morning we intend to speak on vedanta and the future of religion today it is a sort of common knowledge that all organized religions are passing through a state of unrest and confusion even the roman catholic church which maintained a monolithic structure 
for the past 1500 years are being shaken by many modern concepts. Some priests are questioning the infallibility of the Pope and the Immaculate Conception, Virgin Birth, Resurrection and Miracles often used in the past to prove Christ's divine nature. Protestant churches are becoming more interested in social affair and political things. The decline of religion is mainly due to the loss of faith in God and this loss of faith is the result of the materialistic interpretation of life and universe. We shall discuss some of these modern concepts later. Now, spiritual revival on a broad, humanistic, ethical, based upon reason and experience seems to be a great necessity for modern times. This revival will reconcile reason and faith and at the same time preserve the basic fundamental principles of all major religions. Vedanta philosophy of India, I believe, will contribute very much to attain this. You see, a brief outline of Vedanta I shall give at the beginning. Vedanta is one of the six systems of Indian philosophy. Vedanta is the culmination of philosophical speculations regarding the nature of ultimate reality, man and universe. Now, Vedanta is not a mere intellectual philosophy. It shows the way to the direct experience of reality. This is called in the West knowledge by direct acquaintance. The primary scriptures of Vedanta philosophy are the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedanta Sutra. Upanishad contains the philosophy of the Vedas. According to Hindu tradition, the Upanishads should be learned by a qualified student from a qualified teacher. The knowledge of the Upanishads when understood and when practiced, it is said, destroys ignorance, which is the mother of all evil. It enables the students to attain the knowledge of supreme truth and enjoy bliss. Bhagavad Gita is the essence of the Upanishads. Bhagavad Gita deals with all different forms of spiritual discipline 
the discipline of right activity, the discipline of selfless love, discipline of knowledge, and the discipline of yoga or con and concentration. The main emphasis of the teachings of Bhagavad Gita is on the right activity and the love of God. The message of Bhagavad Gita was delivered in the battlefield of Kurukshetra in order to persuade Arjuna to perform his cruel military duties for the protection of righteousness and justice. The third canonical book on Vedanta philosophy is called the Brahma Sutra, which is attributed to a great sage and philosopher whose name was Vyasa. There are in the Upanishads apparently conflicting statements regarding the nature of the soul and ultimate reality and man's ultimate destiny. Brahma Sutra reconciles all these apparent contradictions and gives us a consistent interpretation. Now this consistency is based upon the admission of Brahman or non-dual pure spirit as the ultimate reality. There are many interpreters of Vedanta philosophy or Brahma Sutra and Shankaracharya explains Vedanta as non-dualism. Shankaracharya is one of the brightest stars that shone in the spiritual firmament of India towards the end of the 8th century and the beginning of the 9th. Vedanta describes the proof and criteria of reality. What is the proof of the conclusions of Vedanta? Vedanta philosophers give three proofs. First, the scriptural testimony. The scriptures contain the recorded experiences of the enlightened teachers of the past. We have to learn from the scriptures the nature of reality, but that is not enough. If you depend solely upon scriptures, you become what may be called a fundamentalist or a dogmatist. Therefore, Vedanta says, the second proof is reason. What you study from the scriptures, that you must subject to reasoning. And that even is not enough. As you all know, reason never gives finality. What is proved by one set of reasoning can be disproved by another set of reasoning. So finally comes the experience. One must realize in the depth of heart, in the depth of meditation, what he has learned from the scriptures and what has been proved by reasoning. These are the three proofs of Vedantic truths. The scripture, the reasoning, 
and the personal experience, then what are the criteria of the truth? How do you know that a truth is valid? First of all, according to Vedanta, the ultimate truth is free from quarrel, free from contradiction. It is only the little truth that contradicts, but not the great truth. And also, truth is free from friction, because according to Vedanta, the ultimate reality is one without a second. So if the ultimate reality is one, there cannot be any contradiction, there cannot be any friction in that reality. And thirdly, that truth must be conducive to the welfare of all. Vedanta philosophy instructs us how to experience the reality. As I said before, it is not mere intellectual knowledge, as you find in the Western philosophy, but it is a direct experience. This experience, according to Orthodox Hindu tradition, is transmitted by a teacher to a qualified student. Vedanta philosophy discusses what is real and what is unreal. That is the meaning of discrimination. The real is, according to Vedanta, what always exists under all circumstances and under all conditions. It is nameless, formless, attributeless, but it is not void, because this reality is the creator or projector of this phenomenal universe. Though the phenomenal universe may be illusory, and illusion cannot be produced from nothing, illusion also must have a substratum. The mirage may be illusory, but desert which produces the mirage is not illusory. How is this ultimate reality described? As I said, it is devoid of name and form and attributes. It is devoid of all mental concepts. When the mind becomes still, the sense organs do not function. When a man enters into the innermost recess of his heart, then he realizes this truth. So it is described in the scripture through the negative process of neti neti. It is not this, it is not this. That means this truth cannot be identified with any of the material objects, even it cannot be a concept of our mind. It is also described in Vedanta as Satchidananda. Sat means pure existence, and Chit means pure knowledge, and Ananda means pure bliss. This Satchidananda, existence, knowledge, bliss, is our true self. It's a very interesting word, Satchidananda. I believe 
it fulfills three deep inspirations of all human beings, three deep aspirations. Sat means being. We all want to be. No one wants to be, be not. Then we all want knowledge, chit, knowledge. We do not want to grow up in ignorance. And thirdly, we all want to be happy, ananda, bliss. Now, the physical world cannot fulfill these aspirations of to be and to know and to give us bliss. This Satchidananda, pure existence, pure knowledge, pure bliss. Now mind that, these are not the attributes of Brahman, these are the very stuff Brahman consists of. It is a transcendental experience. So the Hindu philosophers analyzed the universe and found behind the changing phenomena there is the Satchidananda, pure existence, pure knowledge and pure bliss. Likewise, they analyzed the tangible man. In man they found the body is subject to change, the mind is subject to change, the sense organs are subject to change, but there is a witness of this changing phenomena. It is permanent, it is eternal, it is man's inmost consciousness. The Hindu philosophers discovered this inmost consciousness, which they call Atman or the Self, in deep meditation. And furthermore, in meditation they found, they discovered the oneness of Brahman, that means the spirit behind the universe, and Atman, the spirit behind man. Vedanta philosophy does not repudiate a personal God, like the Father in heaven of the Christians, Jehovah of the Jews, or the Allah of the Muslims. Personal God, according to Vedanta, is the preserver, the creator, and the savior. Now this personal God is not different from Brahman. Brahman has two aspects, the active aspect and the non-active aspect. The non-active aspect of Brahman is expressed in silence, cannot be described. It is experienced. The Vedanta philosopher says, when one experiences the bliss of Brahman, he is like a dumb person who, while enjoying a delicious food, cannot express by words because he is dumb. So, according to Hindu view, when Brahman is an active, it is pure spirit expressed in silence. 
and the same Brahman, when active, it is called the personal God, our creator, our preserver, and our savior. We meditate on him, we pray to him, he fulfills our prayer. Now this pure spirit, this is important, is the real essence, the real substance behind the personal God and the creation and the creatures. So these are the four cardinal principles of Vedanta philosophy, which, as I'll try to explain, will have very important bearing upon the future of all religions of the world. One is the reality of spirit, the other, second is the oneness of existence, and third is the non-duality of the Godhead, and fourth is the harmony of religions. Now let us see what is disturbing the existing, organized religions. For, I suppose, nearly a century, religion is receiving constant hammer blows. Modern intellectuals, especially those who are oriented by modern science, they assume different attitudes towards God and religion. It may be an attitude of skepticism or agnosticism or indifference or atheism. It is said Laplace, the great French scientist who wrote his magnum opus, Celestial Mechanics, was asked by Napoleon. Napoleon said to him that you have written this Celestial Mechanics and I do not find any mention of God in your Celestial Mechanics. And Laplace said, Your Majesty, I don't see the need of that unnecessary hypothesis. Science describes the universe as matter in motion, guided by non-intelligent, inert, physical force. So there is no place in this creation, according to science, of an intelligent creator. Therefore, when you remove God, who was regarded before the pre-scientific days as the inspirer of good, or who also was regarded as projector of evil, that good and evil today have become relative, determined by a particular situation. So it is called sometimes situational, situational ethics. Furthermore, science wants to have a direct experience of reality. Reality must be perceived according to science. It must be measured. When Lord Kelvin, I believe, was asked about his belief in God, 
he said that give me a laboratory model of God, then I shall explain to you my belief. Now you cannot have laboratory model of God. Since the advent of Darwin, the whole creative process is being explained by the law of evolution. What is birth? The birth means, the life means, the coming together of the male and female with lust for its cause. And what is death? It is disappearance into nothing. So this is the modern climate. I suppose many intellectuals, if not openly atheistic, they are agnostic. An agnostic is undisturbed by the sublime confidence of the atheists and also of the fundamentalists. There is a story of a great agnostic, Barton Russell is still alive, an old gentleman, philosopher, one of the greatest philosophers. I think during the First World War, Barton Russell became a pacifist. So he was arrested and he was condemned to prison. I suppose three months or one month solitary prison life. So when he was taken to the jail, the superintendent of jail asked him to fill up the form which every prisoner must fill up. So he asked, what is your name? He said, Barton Russell. Your age? He gave his age. What is your religion? He said, I am an agnostic. And the jail superintendent said, spell it. <laughs> so he spelled the word. And then jail superintendent said, in a very pensive mood, thoughtful mood, he said, well, our good God has created so many religions, maybe agnosticism is also one of the religions to experience. And Barton Russell said, well, this really gave me, this statement gave me the cheerfulness to spend one solitary month in the prison. Well, then comes the Marxism, which is also giving a hammer blow. I'll just make very brief generalization. Though it is generalization, I suppose it's substantially true. Marxism, generally speaking, gives a materialistic interpretation of life. It gives economic interpretation of history, individual man is like a cell in a hive. Individual has no freedom. He must obey the state. Religion is the opiate of the people. It is the product. This communism is product of Western scientific materialism. Though at first it was confined to Russia, I mean Russian communists, it is gradually influencing the whole world. Then there is psychology. Well, that's a very vast subject. I'll just say a word or two. Well, according to the general opinion of the psychologist, the inner man is an aggregate of mental states behind mind. A psychologist does not see anything. 
but void. Psychologists say religion speaks of the fatherhood of God. This concept of the fatherhood of God is created by man's feeling of insecurity. He needs a protector at times of danger. So he projects the idea of a fatherhood of God. But when the danger is over, he does not care about God. He forgets all about God. It is said of a, I should say, unrighteous Catholic, the man was dying. The priest came and told him that he was dying. He gave him the extreme unction and he asked him to confess his sin and to promise to lead a spiritual life, virtuous life. He promised. He confessed and he promised. Suddenly the man did not die. So he went back to his old life. And when somebody asked him about his promise at his deathbed, he said, you know, even when I was, I confessed my sin and I promised not to sin anymore when I confessed by order of the priest, I knew all the time I was not dying. I knew all the time that I was not dying. Well, anyhow, Napoleon encouraged the churches, though he himself was not a religious man at all. He wanted his subjects to obey him. And the Bible says, blessed are the meek. So he encouraged the church to popularize the study of the Bible so that they can be meek subjects. You see, this is the way the psychologists treat religion. Then there's anthropology. In order to find out the source of religious beliefs or mystical ideas, the anthropologist generally investigates the primitives or in South Sea or the headhunters, or the cannibals. And there they claim, they find the origin of religion and mysticism. And some of the anthropologists say, take the most sacred Catholic rite, the Eucharist. The anthropologist says, well, you know, among the primitive there is the belief that if you eat the flesh, if you drink the blood of a strong man of the tribe, then you acquire all his manly virtues. So that is the whole meaning of Eucharist. The sociologist says religion is a divisive force. It has no real value. It divides man from man, one group of men from another. Look at the Hindu-Muslim problem. Look at the Jewish-Arab problem. Religion always divides. Religion, before the scientific days, emphasized sin. But science does not emphasize sin. Science emphasizes suffering. Science wants to show us how to get rid of suffering. In Hindu tradition, we are living in an epoch in world's history which is called Kali Yuga. Well, it is the darkest period that when the virtue 
is reduced to the minimum and vice is predominant. The characteristics of Kodi Yuga are the prosperity of a man determines his rank. The wealth says what is right and passion is the sole bond between man and woman. Falsehood and deceit are means to success in life. This is the general tendency of Kali Yuga. I think this is not altogether untrue. These hammer blows are shaking religion to its very foundation. In a way it is good because religion had fallen on evil days. Religion was divorced from the daily problems of life. Thus, religion declined, followed by materialism, and you see the result all over the world. But religion cannot be given up. It must remain. There are no doubt superstitions and errors in religion. They must be avoided. They must be removed in the light of modern science or psychology or other branches of knowledge. Man has a body which is nourished by food. Man has a mind which is nourished by scholarship. Man also has a soul and the soul is nourished through religious experiences, through communion with God. There is an irrepressible desire in every man for freedom. There is no real freedom as long as a man is identified with the body and with the world. Well, there is also this desire to transcend death. Man cannot transcend death, cannot overcome death. He may accept it courageously, but he cannot overcome death as long as he has not realized the immortal nature of his soul. There is a quest for happiness, and this happiness, true happiness, abiding happiness, one does not enjoy through the sense organs. It only comes through communion with the infinite. There is a need for religion. Religion belongs to man's very constitution. As I said, world needs a spiritual revival. What path will be followed by this new religious revival? I believe this path has already been indicated by Ramakrishna, the great prophet of our modern times. He was himself, those who have read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, you will find. He was a living demonstration of the eternal principles of Vedanta. He was a living demonstration of the reality of God. Well, I only can say for myself, and I believe I can say for many of you, 
that when I first read the Gospel of Ramakrishna when I was a young boy, the first thing that struck me that God exists and one can experience God. Ramakrishna thought through actual experience that God dwells in man. All men are the living manifestations of God. He further emphasized, God is one, though people call him by various names. All faiths, he taught, from again actual experience, lead to the same goal of peace and freedom. Now, Ramakrishna's spiritual experiences were explained by his great disciple Shami Vivekananda to the Western world. Shami Vivekananda's teachings are gradually entering into the thought currents of Europe and America. These are some of the vital principles of Vedanta, I believe, which will influence all the developments of future religions. First of all, God exists. He is our creator. He is our preserver. He is our savior. He is the power that controls the movement of the universe. He is the power that controls our body, mind and the sense organs. That's the first thing Vedanta teaches, as you learn from the experiences of Sri Ramakrishna. Secondly, Vedanta does not repudiate the world. That is a wrong notion cherished by many Western people. Vedanta does not deny the world. On the other hand, Vedanta establishes the world on a very firm basis, unshakable basis. The world, according to Vedanta, is a manifestation of God's power. Men and nature and the universe are integral part of the Godhead. Sri Ramakrishna saw this unity behind the diversity. Ignorance hides the unity but cannot destroy it. Ignorance creates hatred, secretiveness, suspicion. Now, all creatures, according to Vedanta, are interdependent. That is the basis of ethics, true ethics. Nowadays, ethics is explained as that which ensures the survival of the fittest, a sort of gladiatorial contest. Now, according to Vedanta, ethics is based upon the oneness of existence and interdependence of all living beings. So, if we injure anyone, anywhere, we injure really ourselves. You see this happening every day. A war, great war is being fought, maybe 10,000 miles away from here, injuries are being inflicted, and we feel the effect here also. So, 
man is, according to Vedanta, endowed with a body at the present time. A man is a mixture of dust and deity, his part animal and part spirit. But this one nature can be suppressed and his higher nature can be fully manifested. Christ said, be ye perfect. He addressed that wonderful statement to all beings, be ye perfect, which means perfection is the birthright of all. There is no conflict, according to Vedanta, between work and meditation. They go together. We meditate on God as the reality dwelling in our heart and also think of God as manifest to all living beings. And work means service to man, all living beings as manifestation of the Godhead. So Hindu philosophers say, first feel the presence of God in your own heart and then apply this experience in your daily contact with other creatures. We often say, work, say even unselfish work, can be a substitute for prayer or meditation. I have not read anywhere in the New Testament that work can be a substitute for prayer and meditation. You read the life of Christ in the evening, after the strenuous work of the whole day, he would retire from the multitude and spend the time alone in communion with God. Christ said, the spirit is willing, but flesh is weak. So if we divorce meditation from work, prayer from work, well, we can cultivate an attitude of arrogance and pride, so on and so forth. Then Vedanta teaches harmony of religions. It repudiates the exclusive claim of salvation by any faith. Vedanta does not believe in this doctrine of either or. Well, according to Vedanta, there is only one truth, eternal truth, and there is only one eternal law. We read about different laws, the laws of science, or the laws of art, or the laws of mathematics, so on and so forth, according to Vedanta. All these different laws are but the applications of the eternal law of God at different levels. Scientific laws are the application of God's eternal law at the level of matter. Religion is the application of the same eternal law to our inner perception. Vedanta says the science is the foundation of physical existence and religion builds the superstructure. The Upanishad says that one should study both science and super science 
through the help of science, one overcomes all the physical limitations. But through super science or religion, one attains to immortality. Well, friends, as I said before, the world needs a spiritual revival on a broad humanistic and ethical basis. Human malady, as I have often said from this pulpit, and every day I am becoming more and more convinced of it, human malady is mainly spiritual. It is not economic. It is not due to backwardness in technical, technological knowledge. No, sir. It is mainly spiritual. You can supply food to hungry people, but you can also you can give the backward nations the technical assistance, but that will not solve the problem. You may fill people's stomach with food, but the atheists will fill their brain with cynical ideas. And today, at the present level of our evolution, when man is guided by and large by emotion, man emotionally is at the level of the children. Man intellectually, in spite of all his vaunted knowledge, he is not far removed from primitive people. And in this stage of evolution, any major discovery of science only gives more power, as you see today, to the ruthless dictator to suppress, to destroy the helpless people. Give food by all means, no doubt. Give them knowledge by all means. I don't object to it. But that is not the main thing. The main malady is spiritual. Now give people, if you can, faith. Give people hope. Give them a song to sing. That song will cheer them up, will cheer the tired and the weary world. And the burden of that song will be the divinity of the soul. As I said, the oneness of existence, the harmony of religion, and the reality of Godhead. Now these truths of Vedanta were discovered maybe 5,000 years ago. But they are not, as I said before, just mere intellectual speculations. They have been experienced in this age by Sri Ramakrishna, who is one of our contemporaries, and later taught by Swami Vivekananda to the Western world through America. Enlightened Americans listen to the message of Vedanta with respect, and they are trying to incorporate this message in their daily life. May God give us the vision and strength to practice these eternal truths, the perennial truths of Vedanta, 
for our own liberation and for the welfare of humanity. Om Asato Ma Sadgamaya Tamaso Ma Jyotir Gamaya Mritto Ma Yamritangamaya Abhirabhir Mayedi Rudra Jatte Dakshinamukham Tenama Pahinittam Tenama Pahinittam Om Shanti 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 Lead us from unreal to real, from darkness to light, from death, disease and suffering to immortality. Manifest thyself in us through and through and protect us always with thy compassionate face. Peace, peace, peace be unto us and to all living beings 